The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? Last week, the US and Canada each sent a warship through the Taiwan Strait and Taiwan has appealed to Washington to bring forward shipments of fighter aircraft to the islands. It has been a tense October for the Taiwan Strait. At the beginning of the month, China celebrated its national day, Guotingjie. And in the four days after that, 150 Chinese aircraft flew over Taiwan's self-declared air defense identification zone, which, by the way, is not the same as Taiwanese airspace. But nevertheless, that was a record number of incursions. But how much of this is performative and how much of it actually betrays a Chinese desire to invade Taiwan in the short term? And if China did want to invade Taiwan, what would it have to do in order to succeed? That's the topic of this episode of Chinese Whispers, and I'm joined by Oriana Schuyler Mastro, fellow at Stanford and the American Enterprise Institute. Oriana wrote an incredibly detailed article looking into this exact topic for foreign affairs early in the year, which I will link to in the description. So, Oriana, welcome to the podcast. First of all, in your article, you write about these four operations that China would have to complete in order to properly invade Taiwan. Can you explain what they are? Right. So I think these are the four main military campaigns. There's a lot of things that China does below the threshold of overt military force. We see these every day right? Economic coercion, psychological warfare, these types of gray zone things. But the military itself has been preparing for relatively traditional military activities to retake Taiwan by force. And there are four main ways that they can do this. And these campaigns can be overlapping. They can do one first and add another one. But these are just sort of different capabilities. So the first is kind of a joint missile campaign. So simply put, this is China shooting a lot of missiles at Taiwan until Taiwan says it's had enough and it wants to be a part of the PRC. So this is really at its heart, a coercion campaign. Another type of coercion campaign that China has been prepared for is a blockade. So in this scenario, they are basically keeping out any sort of trade, resupply, blockading the island of Taiwan until again, the government of Taiwan says, we've had enough, we give up, we're willing to be a part of the PRC. The next campaign is broader. It's often referred to as a counter-intervention campaign. This is their need to focus on preventing the United States from coming to Taiwan's aid. So the types of capabilities that they need for accurate delivery of missiles or to blockade the island are actually quite different than what they need to counter U.S. forces in the region. So this includes like anti-air raids, taking out U.S. bases, in particular in Japan, so that the United States can't get off the ground. So one of the things that comes up a lot with these campaigns and talking about can China do it? 
is whether or not China's military is more powerful than the U.S. military. And the Chinese military is absolutely not more powerful than the U.S. military, but it's also somewhat irrelevant, that question. And so I just bring this up in this last campaign because the United States has one airbase in the sort of nearby vicinity of Taiwan, and China has 39. And in this context, there have been studies, the RAND Corporation did a study that showed that the United States Air Force is far superior. The United States Air Force would probably shoot down 13 aircraft for each aircraft China could shoot down. So what the Chinese sort of decided was, okay, well, if that's going to happen, let's just not let the United States get up in the air. right? We, if we're going to lose 13 aircraft for each one, let's take out their ability to fly. Right, so that's what this campaign is really about, taking out runways so you know, aircraft can't take off. So this is what counter-intervention is about, threatening aircraft carriers with the DF-21D, which is their missile that's capable, an anti-ship ballistic missile that's capable of hitting a carrier at sea. So this is basically telling the United States, you know, you might want to defend Taiwan, but you won't be able to. So that's the third campaign. And then the last campaign is the big one. Right. This is the one where all the debate lies, because most experts agree that China can do those first three. The last one is the amphibious assault. It is actually taking people across the strait and occupying Taiwan. And this type of military operation is extremely complicated. It is very hard. It is a joint operation, which means that different services have to work together. You need air power. You need sea power. You're going to need those troops. You're going to put them on the ground there in Taiwan. All of these things have to be coordinated. And there are actually very few countries that have the ability to conduct this type of joint operation, have the ability to move these forces, what we refer to as airlift or, or sea lift across those distances. So this is very complex. And this is where most scholars are debating, you know, can they do it? And I've come up to the conclusion that under certain conditions, yes, they can. But other people disagree with that assessment. What are some of those conditions that have to be true for that to happen, in your opinion? Right. So the first one is that the United States can't be there mounting a defense at that time. So if the United States, for whatever reason, got tipped off that China is preparing this campaign and so that we're able to deploy forces into the vicinity of the Taiwan Strait, Right. So we have our submarines in place. We have, you know, massed more troops in different areas. We've dispersed our aircraft. So even if they take out our air bases in Japan, it won't have an operational impact. Under those conditions, if China then makes a move against Taiwan, the United States is better positioned to actually stop them. If they are able to move quickly, the United States does need a lot of time actually to get things ready, position ready. We are far away, and so we need that kind of time. So if China can move quickly so the United States does not have time to mount an adequate defense, then China can most likely get boots on the ground. Now, some people would say, well, you know, there's only a few beachheads where they can land. You know, Taiwan has its own defenses, and all of that is true. But those defenses are going to be saturated. The PRC has more stuff than Taiwan has. So at some point, they are able to saturate all of their missile defenses, for example, and they're going to be able to land on the island. So even those that say it's difficult, you know, say Taiwan cannot stop it, they can just increase the cost of that operation. My view is that Xi Jinping doesn't really care about the cost if he can win. If you told Xi Jinping, you can win this war, but you're going to lose your navy, right? The United States is going to sink your navy. I think his position is, well, great, I can build a new navy. So I think the main disagreement comes down to 
not whether or not they can do it in the end, even though people use that language, but how costly it would be for them to succeed. Mm. And let's talk about the motivations of Xi Jinping in just a little bit. But before we go there, Oriana, I was wondering, you were, we, we often hear a lot about how the Chinese military is spending so much more money increasing these days. But as you said just now, the American military is still much, much stronger. So when we talk about PLA modernization or increasing investment, for example, what does that mean for Taiwan? How relevant have these recent years of moving been for the Taiwan situation? Oh, it's like night and day. It's not that the United States, you know, some people I think have the false impression that all of a sudden, you know, the United States has woken up to the threat of the Chinese military and that this military has been threatening for so long and we just didn't notice. Mm. That actually has not been the case. Instead, it's just that China has made such great advancements in such a short period of time. So if you go back to 1996, for example, the last Taiwan Strait crisis, China had zero ability, really, to disrupt U.S. space assets. So the United States communications, precision, you know, navigation, all this sort of stuff that, you know, we relied on space for. Now, granted, we rely more on it now than we did in 1996, but we had all these capabilities. China couldn't touch us. China could barely, you know, fly over water in 1996. This was the first time that they had, you know, gone over into some of that airspace ever, because this is very complicated, actually, for pilots to be able to fly over water and weather. They were years away from being able to refuel aircraft, in the air. Most of their ships didn't even have any defenses on them. So they have to hug the coastline of China to rely on land-based defenses. So there's a reason why the United States was not particularly concerned. Of course, we wanted to avoid a war in the Taiwan Strait, but we weren't particularly concerned about our likelihood of victory in that war in 1996. Now you flash forward and, you know, we can't move an aircraft carrier in the vicinity of Taiwan without that carrier being threatened by Chinese missile capabilities. They now have the most advanced cruise and ballistic missile capabilities in the world. More advanced they than Americans? Many, more advanced than the United States. Absolutely. Wow. And, and that's partially because of different interests, right? The United States is not trying to keep countries at bay from coming close to our coasts. So I don't mean to suggest that if the United States made this a top priority, you know, could we catch up? You know, sure. But it doesn't have the same operational impact. Because there's nothing for us to shoot. You know, China can't project power that far. The only ability they have to project power that reaches, you know, the United States homeland is through space and cyber. And then their ICBMs for their nuclear deterrent. So that just hasn't been a focus. So they've built so much of stuff, right? They now have a larger Navy than the U.S. Navy, but they've also moved so these systems are much more advanced than they were 25 years ago. And on top of that, they've realized that organizational reforms are so important. The ability of the services to operate together, uh, to streamline command and control. And so Xi Jinping launched major reforms in this area that basically redid the whole organization of the People's Liberation Army so that they would be better positioned to conduct joint operations. And a lot of those organizational reforms just came to a conclusion this past year. And that's why I've written that I think this is a turning point for Chinese thinking on Taiwan. Mm. So you think that because of the capability that has been reached domestically, now they're thinking the cost, as you say, is now lower and we can afford it. Right. So before, they didn't really have any option to initiate a conflict. Of course, China, if Taiwan had declared independence, China would have fought with everything that it had, even even if... It wasn't going to win, even if the prospect of victory were low. But now we're in a world in which they could possibly win. 
And I think then the debate really comes to what does the world look like afterwards from the Chinese perspective? Do countries react in a way that harms their overall rejuvenation goals or not? And so that's what sort of the second part of the debate is about. Not, you know, can they do it, but do they want to do it? But in the end, there's a reason why they develop these capabilities, right? It's not random. It's not like they were like, oh, wait, now we have these capabilities. I, I didn't expect this. Now <laughs> let me think about Taiwan. I mean, they were all about Taiwan this whole time. So the fact that they laid out this plan after the third Taiwan Strait crisis, and they were like, okay, we want to have these capabilities to be able to conduct these campaigns. And then now they can conduct these campaigns. So to me, it doesn't seem to be a leap that then they will conduct those campaigns. Mm. Let's talk about those motivations, that second part of the debate, as you mentioned. Obviously, Taiwan-China relations have, or I should say, ROC-PRC relations since 2016 haven't been great since Tsai Ing-wen was elected the current Taiwanese president, who is much more critical of China, uh, much more separated, distant from China. But it does seem that in the last few months, things have hotted up. You've mentioned, for example, the military capability getting to a certain level now. But what other factors do you think are really catalyzing what we're seeing at the moment? Well, a lot of my critics rightfully say something that I agree with. I just I, I haven't focused on it in my writing, but I agree with the critique overall, is that the United States needs to be much more focused on reassuring Beijing that Taiwan independence is not a U.S. policy goal, right? Mm-hmm. That the U.S. policy on Taiwan has not changed, that the United States still prefers and will continue to impose caution on the leadership of Taiwan not to move in the direction of independence. There was an internal debate in China about whether the United States would use Taiwan in a sort of great power competition, in an effort to maintain its position in Asia, in an effort to undermine China. I think even moderate voices now believe that that is a part of U.S. strategy, that it's not really about deterrence, that it's not really about you know our position on Taiwan or Taiwan being a democracy, but we're just using all of this as an excuse to try to weaken China in the face of you know its rise as a competitor to the United States. So because of that, I think we see a lot more of this aggressive type of activity coming out of China. And I don't see those messages coming out of the United States as being particularly useful for us, either from a deterrence perspective or from an operational perspective. It doesn't help with this issue of the ability to actually defend Taiwan in any sort of way. So any sort of policy changes or policy moves, I think those are a mistake. You know, the United States thinking about changing how they name Taiwan or refer to Taiwan or having high level meetings that they've never had before. None of this actually helps us win any wars. And all it does is convince the Chinese that that we're fighting for a different future. And it's not about avoiding war. Are those Chinese strategists wrong in thinking that there are some in D.C. who do see Taiwan in that way? So I think they're wrong now. (laughs) I don't think the Biden administration sees Taiwan in that way. I think the Biden administration is just falling into this kind of old school hubristic trap of thinking like, oh, if the United States says no, then that means no. And like Mm. everyone understands how powerful we are. Again, this isn't 1996. You know, now you sail an aircraft carrier near China, they have options. (laughs) They didn't have options 25 years ago. So I think they just don't understand that all the signaling of resolve actually doesn't do anything to shape China's calculus, or perhaps to give them a bit more benefit of the doubt, maybe they don't care as much and the real audience isn't China at all, 
but other U.S. allies and partners to show them that, you know, the United States is willing to be provocative in order to stand by its partners in Asia. I think probably China strategists would have been right about the Trump administration. Sure. It was my understanding that their overall approach to competition was just to undermine China wherever they could find China. I particularly did not think that was an effective strategy for competition. And so I was very critical of that. But not because I don't think the United States is in a great power competition with China, just because I would like us to have a strategy in which, you know, we actually win. I mean, that's fair enough. And let's talk a little bit about what motivates C domestically as well, because I, I thought one really interesting part in your article was when you said that once China has the military capabilities to finally solve its Taiwan problem, C could find it politically untenable not to do so, suggesting that there's pressure from public opinion and the strategists that we've mentioned. Right. And I'm glad that you pointed that out because for your listeners that maybe read my foreign affairs articles, then read some of the critiques and my response to the critiques, you'll notice that one of the individuals wrote that that was not a particularly accurate depiction of Xi Jinping's position within the Chinese system. Now, in my response, I sort of concede that position, but editors you know, don't like agreements. So they took that part out. So this kind of lets me expand a bit on what my thinking was. Please do, yes. I was a bit, yeah, I was a bit short in the language because I do not think it's the case, you know, that Xi Jinping feels like he has to take Taiwan for domestic political support. I think he has been very successful at consolidating support and that he has, you know, the option to sit on this issue if he wants to sit on this issue. There are, are no challengers to him, whether in the elite or in civil society. However, I think that it is tempting, not because he feels like he's going to lose power. That's not what makes it politically sort of untenable to not take Taiwan. But because he himself seems to be a nationalistic leader. Mm. He himself has publicly said that his main goal of rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, right, regaining their natural position as an advanced and dominant country in Asia, cannot be completed until Taiwan is taken. So he has basically said to the Chinese people, like, I am not a success until this happens. And I think that comes, you know, from a position of confidence that he wants to be the guy, right? He wants to go down in history as the guy that, you know, resolved this civil war once and for all, that achieved the most important goal of the Communist Party. And so that's why I think it is extremely tempting to him, more so than fear that he's going to be overthrown if it doesn't happen. It's actually that position of strength that makes attempts at taking Taiwan not very costly. I think he could try to take Taiwan and not succeed and stay in power. Yes. As long as Taiwan wasn't independent or something, like as long as we just kind of reverted to the previous status quo, I think he could easily make attempts. And then, oh, it didn't go my way. Well, I was just teaching the foreigners a lesson. Or, you know, I'll just take some offshore islands. I think he can spin it always as success. People will be so happy that he was tough in some way. And so I don't think there's actually a huge risk in even trying. Yes. Although I might go a little bit further than you do, Oriana, and just say, you know, public opinion does matter in this sort of nationalistic way. So, for example, if we think about the bombing of the Chinese embassy in Belgrade by a NATO operation in 1999, the Chinese public, you know, was in uproars over what they perceived as a weak government response. And now with social media, I would think that, you know, if, if anyone perceived of having weakness would not necessarily be ousted from power, but certainly it would be a trickle effect that damages their reputation in the long run. Right. I think the relationship between the Chinese people and the Communist Party is extremely complex. And at least people 
that I have spoken to or interacted with in the U.S. government don't seem to appreciate the complexity of that relationship. Mm. I think there are a lot of simplistic assumptions about the fact that China is an autocratic country, that we assume that the majority of the Chinese people do not support the Communist Party you know, and it's just because of repression or oppression that these things are occurring. Now, of course, there are pockets of totalitarianism in China, right, in Xinjiang, Tibet, and to a degree now in Hong Kong. But to say that, you know, the Chinese people have no freedom is also not completely accurate. And when it comes to Taiwan, if the party uses force, the average Chinese person, you know, I think based on my interactions and polling data I've seen, are going to be 100% in support of this operation. You know, when I talk to some of my Chinese colleagues and I say, well, what about the costs? They're like, when it comes to Taiwan, costs do not matter, right? This is so important to them. So I think in a lot of cases, you know, the Trump administration used to always say this, like we're critical of the party, not the Chinese people, trying to make that separation. And of course, you know, we want to have positive people to people relations, but it would also be a mistake to think that the Chinese people in no way support the ambitions of that the party has for the country. Yeah, well, well, you mentioned it being, you know, a communist ambition to retake Taiwan. But, you know, from my upbringing in China and my conversation with Chinese people, I would agree with you in that, you know, the vast majority of Chinese people take it for granted that Taiwan is a part of China. It's beyond communism in a way in that it's just nationalistic. It harks back to a time previous to what we call New China, Communist China. Right, I think that's absolutely right. And, and also, if you just look at historical trends, right, 80% of wars since 1860 have been about territory. When I look at Xi Jinping, you know, you might say to yourself, okay, well, some leaders are particularly cautious or some leaders are particularly risk averse or some countries are in particularly weak positions so they don't want to fight over territory. But I don't think any of those things apply to Xi Jinping. Yeah. I don't look at that leader and say, I think he's going to be the outlier in what is, you know, on a hundred and what, 70, 80 year history of leaders, nationalistic leaders having military capabilities and wanting to retake territory. He seems to fall very squarely into that from my perspective. Mm. And he also seems quite legacy driven. I mean, the, the rhetoric coming from the party at the moment is really very rousing at the moment, saying, you know, this is a once in a century opportunity. We, we're, we're at the previous level of power. We're going to take back, you know, this rejuvenation moment. But Given all of that ambition, and he's talking now about common prosperity within the Chinese society of, you know, eradicating inequality and all that sort of stuff. Do you think that Taiwan, you know, is a good thing for him to be pursuing right now? Because doesn't that conflict with his domestic agenda when it comes to the economics, at least? I think China can walk and chew gum at the same time. Mm. I really do think that, you know, they haven't reached this point of the guns and butter trade-offs in which they don't have the economic resources or even the political clout to be able to do both at the same time. Now, this goes back to the comment I made before about the aftermath. If it were to be the case that China takes Taiwan by force, that U.S. allies and partners cut off diplomatic relations with China and stop trading with China indefinitely, this would be a cost too high. This would threaten their rejuvenation, their rise. And this is something that Xi Jinping, I think, absolutely would say is not worth it to try to take Taiwan. But it's my understanding that that's not really the direction that most countries in the world are going. I think they've had a foreign policy strategy designed to convince countries that Taiwan is a unique scenario that's not indicative Mm. of how they would react in other foreign policy types of situations. And at the maybe most, there would be some condemnation, maybe some economic sanctions for like a three to five year period, but something like that they could write out. 
So unless it's really going to be, you know, then China is no longer, you know, acceptable part of the international community, I think they would find the economic costs to be relatively temporary and to be acceptable. Now, very recently, with some of this Taiwan stuff, with statements made by the Japanese prime minister or with the signing of AUKUS, right, the deal between Australia, the United States, and Great Britain to sell nuclear submarines to, to Australia, this has suggested that countries are becoming less risk averse to provoking China. Mm-hmm. In other words, they're, they're more and more willing to take the risk of upsetting China. So to me, these are initial data points. It's not enough to convince China that that future I laid out would actually happen, but it might be enough to make them pay attention, mm-hmm. to wonder if the tables are turning. So if there's much more activity like this that suggests that the international, and not even the international community, but really U.S. allies and partners, which are the majority of their trading partners, were to turn on them, then I think that would be a cost too high. And that's also why Xi Jinping is so obsessed with self-reliance and also you know, technological self-reliance, not having to rely on the United States or its allies and partners for anything, and actually trying to move a lot of its trade relationships to Belt and Road countries in the developing world. I think China is really poised to be the leader of the developing world. And I don't see in all of this competition talk, the United States really paying attention to what you know, role the United States should have in the developing world. I think we're overly focused just on sort of advanced countries, our allies and partners that tend to mostly be democracies, that mostly have advanced economies, and we're ignoring large parts of the world where the Chinese are becoming more and more influential. Yes, and especially with COVID and the vaccine diplomacy that we like to sneer at from the West, but actually not doing much to combat. But Oriana, can I also ask you about, you know, that, that whether or not it's even within the gift of government to stop trading with China. You know, in the West, the economies are not as directed by the state as in China. You know, you can't just go tell businesses stop importing or exporting from China. So is it even possible for such a Western united front to, you know, choke China off economically? without losing our freedoms. Well, so yes, it's in the government's ability to do that. I mean, we do that with all sorts of countries. If there's economic sanctions, there's export control laws, governments do decide who you're allowed to trade with and who you're not allowed to trade with. Now, I'm actually, you know, I'm a China expert. I know a lot about China. Maybe you should know more about my own country and yours than I do. But it's like my understanding, for example, is that at Congress in the United States, it gets to make that determination. So it's definitely not companies. Companies do not get to decide who they can trade with, who they can't trade with, and what goods and services. At least in the United States, there's already restrictions on that. And of course, if a country, if we don't recognize a country anymore, right, that's why we have the Taiwan Relations Act, actually. When we abrogated the treaty with Taiwan and cut off diplomatic relations with Taiwan to normalize relations with China, Congress needed to put a legal framework in place just for us to have commercial cultural and other types of interactions. So that was really what the heart of that act was about, mm-hmm. of course, of which component of it is to ask the president to consider defending Taiwan. But yeah, it is in the power of governments to to tell the, the private companies that are within their borders that, that they are not allowed to engage in trade with certain entities. We, we do it all the time with individuals and with governments. Mm. And Oriana, with your China expert hat on, what does that mean if such a you know situation happens and we avoid war because we've set China out as a prior state because they have annexed Taiwan or whatever it is? What does that mean for people within China? You know, it's it's a debate within the foreign affairs community about whether or not these sanctions work and whether or not it drives people away from the government or into the government's arms. Does that weaken the government, the Chinese Communist Party within China? 
So the short answer is I have no idea. There are two scenarios, and this is, you know, if we successfully deter, but also there's the scenario, like, let's just say there's a war and the United States wins. I think there are unintended consequences to success, right? Do we end up, and I don't mean to compare Germany in any way in terms of capabilities, intentions, motivations to China, but just in in terms of the post-war scenario, do we end up with like Versailles Treaty Germany, like a Versailles Treaty China, in which they're like, you have harmed us, you have hurt mm-hmm. us, and mm-hmm. now all of our focus is on rebuilding our power and coming back with a vengeance? Or is it a post-World War II Germany in which they're like, we made a mistake, we shouldn't have done that, and now we want to be a peaceful member of the international community? I don't know. Like, if we successfully deter China, or even if we're successful in beating back China from taking Taiwan – are we in a better position than we were before? Or have we created such an enemy or such a monster? I think a lot of that depends on the war termination solution. And this is why I've advocated in the United States very unpopularly that we have to get used to the idea that we will lose blood and treasure and return to the status quo. We cannot, in our minds, think that even if we win this war, if China tries to attack Taiwan and we win the war, that we would demand Taiwan independence or demand any sort of change in the status quo. Because that's either how we get the Chinese to never give up, right? That's how we get nuclear war. Or they give up then, but, you know, they're going to be coming for us in a couple of years, right? So we have to make any aftermath of a successful deterrent effort or even of a wartime effort something that's acceptable to China. Or else I think, you know, we'll regret it in the future. Mm. And Oriana, I know you have to go. So just one final question. What do you think is the possibility or probability of an accidental war based on miscommunication between the two sides? I think it's like zero. Okay. Yeah. So, so I know in the United States in particular, we harp on this accidental war thing. But part of my argument of China really only thinking about initiating a conflict, if they think they have the capabilities to do it, is they're not going to be in any way compelled to fight a war that they feel that they cannot win, that are not under ideal circumstances. So short of like, if the miscommunication is they think Taiwan has declared independence and it hasn't type of miscommunication, like I guess that could lead to war. But most of what people are talking about are collisions, for example, given Chinese increased military activity in the region, things like that. I mean, the bottom line is I'm not saying a war won't happen in the aftermath, but I don't see it as inadvertent. Probably what will happen is if you had some sort of collision, you know, that military advisors would go to Xi Jinping and Xi Jinping would ask two questions. The first would be, do you think we have to fight the United States at some point? If the answer to that is yes, the second question is, do you think now is the most favorable time to do that? Mm -hmm. If the answer to that is yes, then yeah, we get a war. But I don't think it's, you know, an inadvertent spiral. I think then it's still sort of a deliberate decision on the part of the party. So I'm, I'm much less concerned, I think, than a lot of my counterparts in the United States about crisis management and inadvertent escalation, we need to be thinking about deterring purposeful and deliberate uses of force. I don't think we spend enough time on that issue. And we spend too much time on the former. Fascinating. Thank you so much, Oriana Skyler Mastry. We'll have to resume this conversation soon. Of course. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening to this episode. If you're wondering why Taiwan matters just so much to China that it might risk international pariah status in order to get it back, then do tune in to my previous episode on the topic when I talk to Professor Rana Mitter and the journalist Jessica Drun about Taiwan's place in the Chinese mindset. And I'll put a link to that in the description as well. Thanks for listening. And remember, if you enjoy this podcast, please do rate and review us because it really helps us to get discovered.